You are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. And just as a warning, these films might be in theaters now, or they may be from 10, 20, 30 years ago. But regardless, there's a strong possibility that I will be revealing spoilers. I might give away the plot or the ending in this review, so just be warned. We are here to discuss Cape Fear, which came out in 1991 and was directed by Martin Scorsese. He paid his debt to society. And what was he in prison for? Now. Come out, come out, wherever you are. I want you the hell off my property. He's paying back his lawyer. You have a daughter around 16? 16? What? From director Martin Scorsese, Robert De Niro, Nick Nolte, Jessica Lang, Cape Fear, rated R. It stars Nick Nolte, Jessica Lang, Robert De Niro, Juliette Lewis, Fred Thompson, Joe Don Baker, and Ileana Douglas. The genre would be horror suspense thriller. Now to start things off, this film was a remake of the classic 1962 thriller of the same name starring Gregory Peck and Robert Mitchum. The actual story of Cape Fear is quite simple, and it's pretty similar to the original, though a bit more updated for the 90s. De Niro plays Max Cady, who just got out of jail after serving 14 years. He was serving a term for rape and battery. His attorney at the time of his first trial was Sam Bowden, played by Nolte. Now, Bowden is living the good life in Georgia with his wife, Leigh, played by Lang, and his daughter, Danielle, played by Juliette Lewis. At least on the surface, they're living the good life, as they live in a huge mansion quite comfortably, but under the surface, all is not well with this family. And as it turns out, all is not well with Katie, who is now determined to get revenge on Bowden for apparently misrepresenting him during his trial. Katie seeks revenge in ways that are subtle and not so subtle. First, he starts to interfere with their lives. Then he starts to harass them. And then things start to get increasingly dangerous and life-threatening. Horrible, high-pitched howls. They sounded like he was screaming. And then Danny came running in, and I, uh, I called the vet. And then it was so weird because it was like he was winding down. Just winding down like an old clock. And then all of a sudden, he just stopped. And it's kind of... His eyes just wide open. It's just kind of surprised look. <laughs> and then and then he died. To say that this story just goes no holds barred is an understatement, as the level of violence shown is pretty extreme, as is the sound design to pump things up further. Now, how much you take the story seriously really depends on the kind of mindset you bring into this movie. But what really sells all of this are the performances of the four main leads and all the technical expertise behind the camera to pull this off. So in other words, everyone involved with this production just does their job very well. And of course they would, as this was probably the closest Scorsese had ever come to directing a conventional Hollywood blockbuster and working with a big budget. This was his follow-up to his masterpiece, Goodfellas, which had just come out the year before this. And yes, I will be reviewing that seminal film at some point. When this came out in 1991, adult-oriented thrillers were all the rage. Silence of the Lambs, Basic Instinct, Single White Female, The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, Dead Again, Raising Cain, and Unlawful Entry, they all came out within a year of this. 
I remember also seeing every one of these films in theaters. Now, in retrospect, Silence of the Lambs, which came out the same year but earlier, it still holds up as the best overall movie of that entire bunch. But for best audience movie, Cape Fear was the best. And I remember seeing this on opening night, just under 30 years ago, and I cannot recall a packed audience that erupted with so much nervous laughter more frequently. There are just so many crazy moments. I mean, just to list the ones that stand out, I mean, you have De Niro, De Niro's Katie walking out of prison straight into the camera. You also have De Niro's Katie in that movie theater laughing uproariously, smoking a cigar in front of the Bodens. You also have that famous sequence where they reveal his tattoos when they're watching him in the police station. And Robert Mitchum, who actually was in the original film playing Max Katie, he has a cameo here, and he has a very memorable line when he sees all those tattoos. Gee. I don't know whether to look at him or read him. Also can't forget when there's a smash cut to Nolte Sam Bowden sleeping on a couch right after we just watched him for five minutes try to convince his wife that they need to stick together. Obviously, it didn't work. Another one, of course, is that scene where they hire the, the hired hands to beat up Max Cady. And of course, after he's beaten them up, he realizes Sam might be nearby in a nearby dumpster and he has this whole monologue. Counselor? Counselor? Could you be there? Could you be there? Then, of course, there's that really uncomfortable sequence with Juliette Lewis and, uh, and De Niro's Katie, and she runs out of the theater, and we hear this bang. I remember the whole audience just shuddered for that. Then, of course, there's also <laughs> the extremely violent moment when we see Nick Nolte, Sam Bowden, tripping on the kitchen floor in the puddle of blood, going apeshit. But we'll get to that later. And, of course, there's that scene that I know the whole audience just gasped and then laughed when we see that Max Katie's actually been hanging under the car of the Bodens after they've just driven hundreds of miles to get away from him. Cape Fear just has no shortage of batshit moments along those lines. And you could tell that Scorsese was just having such a blast with this movie. You have your freeze frames, your overhead shots, your zooms through windows, your reverse negative dissolves. In retrospect, he might have been having a go at what his buddy Brian De Palma specialized in with his kind of thrillers. But it would be a while before he would just cut loose like this again in a pure genre film. And that would be the more somber but no less crazy Shutter Island, which came out in 2009. And beyond that, the cast. You have Peak, Nolte, Lang, and De Niro all looking their best in their 40s. I mean, De Niro looks almost freakishly jacked in this. And they're really elevating what at times on the page seem like standard thriller material. Of course, we also have a revelatory performance from then 17-year-old Juliette Lewis. She really holds her own alongside three top-flight veteran actors, especially in that creepy theater scene with De Niro. Both she and De Niro were justifiably nominated for Oscars for their performances. It's kind of crazy that she was only 17 when they filmed this, but no worries. No rules or laws were broken during filming, rest assured. You thought about me last night, didn't you? <sighs> um, yes, I did. I know. You know, I, I think I might have found a companion. Companion for that long walk to the lab. Do you mind if I put my arm around you? It's okay. No, I don't mind. 
And despite some extended dialogue sequences featuring De Niro, who just gorges himself silly, on no shortage of over-the-top Southern fried Bible speak from Wesley Strick's screenplay, this film really moves at 128 minutes. I am like God and God like me. I am as large as God. He is as small as I. He cannot above me nor I beneath him me. Salacious 17th century. And that length even includes an extended climax taking place on a riverboat, which I think goes on for about 20 minutes. For this film to move so well, you have to give major props to Scorsese's longtime collaborating film editor, Thelma Schoonmaker. This is the same editor who helped deliver the masterful cutting of montages and one-takes for Goodfellas just the year before as well. She basically helped deliver two films in a row, which were both well over two hours, and yet both of them feel like they are barely 90 minutes. No small feat. And that brings me to the categories. The first category would be Best Needle Drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film. Now, the score is definitely a highlight for this film, and it just never quits. It's actually very similar to the score of the 1962 original composed by the legendary Bernard Herrmann. The version for the 91 score was composed by the also legendary Elmer Bernstein. Throughout this film's runtime, we really only hear about two or three distinct melodies, but they are quite memorable especially these four repeating notes coming from French horns, which punctuate several moments when we see Max Cady appear on screen. And never more so than when we first meet De Niro's Cady still in his jail cell. Well, first we see the camera pan around the walls of his jail cell, showing shelves of books and posters of various tyrants from history, whom he clearly admires. And then we see his muscular back just suddenly enter the frame as we see him doing these elevated push-ups. It's really one of the great villain introductions. Now that brings me to the next category, which would be Wasted Talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. I'm at a loss, actually, to think of anyone who's actually wasted in this film in Cape Fear. But the late, great Fred Thompson, he plays Nolte's boss in this, and his screen time is pretty limited, which is a slight disappointment because there was a point in the 90s when you could never have enough Fred Thompson. In films including Days of Thunder, Die Hard 2, and The Hunt for Red October, He always played authority figures who usually appeared on screen mainly to dress down our main protagonist or at least set them straight. He just had this great deep voice which was commanding and laid back at the same time. I just love to hear this guy talk. And I imagine you'll tell me what all the hubbub's about. Now far be it from me to question Marty the Master here, but come on. We couldn't have just one scene of him dressing down Nolte Sam? I don't give a shit. I don't think anybody else does, regardless what they say to your face. That brings me to the next category, which would be trailer moment. This is the scene or moment that best describes this movie. Now, this is genuinely tough, as just earlier I listed about eight different moments which would all qualify for this category. So I'll narrow it down to just two to spread the wealth just a bit. 
The first trailer moment has to be De Niro's Katie laughing in that movie theater. It's pretty much his introduction to the Bodens, who are sitting just a few rows behind him watching the movie Problem Child, which was a silly 90s kiddie comedy starring the late great John Ritter. Sam doesn't recognize him, but they can certainly hear him and smell and see the cigar smoke that he's puffing out between cackles. Now, just imagine if he was in your movie theater. Excuse me. And now my second trailer moment, it's a doozy. The Bodens have staked out their own house with the help of a private detective named Kursek, played by Joe Don Baker. They're expecting Katie to break in, but he doesn't know that Sam's in there, and he doesn't know that Baker's P.I. is in there either. So after one tense night when nothing happens except some strong wind outside, their personal maid comes by the house in the morning to serve them breakfast and clean up a bit. And as Kursik sits down at the kitchen table, she serves him a cup of coffee as he makes conversation with her. Only, it's not her. It's Katie wearing a wig. Dun-dun-dun! He then starts to strangle Kursik, who lifts his gun, but then accidentally shoots himself in the head. The Bones hear the gunshot and run downstairs to not only find the maid strangled dead on the floor, but Kursik shirtless lying in a pool of his own blood. There are both gasps and screams of horror from all three of them. But then, here comes the funny part. <laughs> well, the darkly comic part. Sam walks over to check on Kursik's body and slips on the floor in the blood. And then Leigh comes to help him up, but then she slips on the blood. Well, Sam just loses it. He grabs the gun and storms outside to shoot at, well, nothing really. Neither describing this nor even playing an audio clip does this scene justice, but it's just one hell of a crazy moment of bravura filmmaking demonstrating the heights of insanity that some seemingly rational, mild-mannered folks can reach when they're pushed to the limit. And that brings me to the final category, and that would be the MVP, the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. The MVP has to be Scorsese. He's one of our greatest living directors for a reason, as Cape Fear was just one great example of his versatility. And just think about this, Marvel fans who are embittered towards his recent comments about Marvel movies. He directed this crazy horror film between a true story crime epic, Goodfellas, and a period romantic drama, Age of Innocence, which was based on a classic novel written by Edith Wharton. And this was preceded a few years prior by a biblical drama that he directed, The Last Temptation of Christ, which was about the last days of Jesus Christ. And just before that, he did a snappy sports drama, The Color of Money, starring Paul Newman and Tom Cruise as pool hustlers. Now, there's only one mob picture in there, as far as I can tell, among that run. That's versatility. And as I said earlier, it's just a kick to watch him cut loose like this, as he has crafted a highly memorable, full sensory experience of a roller coaster thriller that never lets up, pretty much right until the last shot. Scorsese wasn't slumming for a cash grab genre remake here. 
He's using all of his tricks and utilizing all of his best collaborators to elevate this film, elevate the material. Now, I probably rewatch Cape Fear once every couple of years. And despite some truly uncomfortable moments, some of which I might have just mentioned, this is definitely among Scorsese's most rewatchable movies. I think it's really important that uh, people start getting used to this widescreen wide format um, because you see the entire frame, you see the interaction between the actors, you get the full impact of the editing, and the full impact of the composition of what's in the frame and what is not in the frame. And that's really what's most important. My rating for Cape Fear would be four stars out of five. <laughs> Cape Fear is about to turn 30. And if you can, see it on the biggest screen possible with the most piercing sound system, if for nothing else than to hear that booming score. If you're looking for it right now, it's currently streaming on Stars. And that ends another Bravura review. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast, and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Living for the Cinema.